Good morning, uh, once again. If you have your Bible, you can begin to move to John chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you're new or relatively new, uh, there are um, bathrooms here uh, available for your use. There are some drinks and snacks in the back. If you've got little ones and you would like them to participate in the service, there are sheets age-specific sheets on the back table that they can fill out and then bring up to uh, my wife, Miss Christie, and they will get a prize from the treasure box. Um, I guess we could limit the age. Alex, you can't do it, sorry. 18 and under. 18 and under. Some of you would like to get a sheet and pay attention and color, but I would encourage you to just listen to the soothing sound of my voice instead. So... um, Audrey said something when she prayed, and the Lord had imparted something in me when I was praying with Mike earlier, and that was the idea of being expectant. And when I hear something more than once from two different people, my my ears perk up, and I say, okay, Lord, you're, you're doing something. So I would encourage you, if you're not expectant this morning to hear from God, change your heart attitude and come expectant to hear from the Word of God. So would you do that? I, I hope that you will. And so, as I said, we're in in John chapter 7. We're looking at sort of an interesting passage this morning. We're going to look at the remainder of chapter 7. And we're going to find that two things are happening. One is that Jesus is further clarifying who he is. And the people around him are suffering from a severe case of mistaken identity. The more Jesus teaches, the more he reveals about himself... And his true identity, the more people reject him and turn against him. You can see that increasingly happening throughout the Gospel uh, of John, and we see more of that today. So here's what we're going to do. Let's look to the passage this morning. What is it saying? What is the point of the passage? What can we gain from the message this morning? Our time in terms of being equipped for action. Paul tells us that the word of God is breathed out by God, right? And it's useful for teaching us what's true, making us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us what to do in terms of righteousness. It equips us, church. That's part of the expectancy, right? Let's let's be expecting that the word of God is going to speak to us this morning and move us to action. So, Let's bring that before the Lord as well as our time in John this morning in prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can come expectant. We know, Lord, that you have a desire to see us grow, mature, walk in obedience, in love, in faithfulness. And Lord, you give us all that we need through your word to do these things. And so we pray that you would help us focus now on your word. Come ready to hear from you, ready to receive, expecting that you will move in our hearts and our lives, God. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, my friends, if you have any questions this morning over the course of our message, I would encourage you to text those to the number that is in the the, uh, digital bulletin. Uh, If you text those questions, we'll come up, Mike and I, at the end of service, and we'll, we'll answer some of those questions for you as they come in. So please feel free to do that and interact in that way. So... Hopefully you're in John chapter 7 as I'm making my way there. We're going to take this text in a couple of different chapters.
chunks because it is a bit of a longer text, but um, John chapter 7, picking up where Mike left off last week. We're going to be in uh, verse 14, and I'm going to read through verse 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do the God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If, one on the sab- if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So again, picking up where Mike left off last week, we're in the middle of this massive celebration. What, what, is, what is a celebration going on in this chapter? There's a feast, right? Feast of tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, right? It's this massive event where all of the people, all of the Jews would come together. There was a, a huge gathering of folks, and it's right here, right in the middle of this celebration that Jesus makes his way to the temple and he starts teaching. And of course, the people are just shocked at what he is teaching, that he's got this incredible wisdom and knowledge, and they're saying, how is this possible? He's never even opened a book. He's never even studied. How is it possible? And I can't help but laugh about that. How, how is it possible that Jesus knows so much? I wonder. And so he responds to their marveling, and he makes this very clear statement. I think it's funny how he just kind of points right to it. He says, hey, look, this teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. In other words, I'm, I'm here because the Father sent me to you, and I speak on his behalf. And then he goes on to tell him, if your will is to do his will, then you will know that this teaching is from God and that I'm not speaking on my own authority. So he's just laying it out for them. Not only that, he says, why are you seeking to kill me? Why is it that you're after my life? Now you got to love their reply in verse 20, right? How do they reply to him in verse 20? You have a demon. <laughs> Who's seeking to kill you? Right? They're basically saying, you're out of your mind, Jesus. There's nobody after you. You're mistaken. This is what we sometimes call... Um, Jesus reading their mail. Anybody ever heard that term before? Yes. Yeah. In other words, <laughs> he knows exactly what they're thinking, when they're thinking, and how they're going about their entire lives. He knows that they're plotting. And he, he doesn't pursue that line of questioning. He could, could easily go down that path and tell them exactly why he knows they're plotting, but he doesn't do that. He goes about it a different way. He goes to what they know best, which is the law. Remember, these are, these are Jewish leaders. They are well-versed in the law. That is their entire life. They know it inside and out. So you look at verse 22. This is what he says. Moses gave you circumcision. You gave, if you circumcise a man on Sabbath, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole body well? 
So this is talking about a previous event in John chapter 5. You remember when Jesus had healed the invalid 38 years at the pool of Bethesda? He was sitting there waiting for the waves, the water to stir up and somebody. So that was on the Sabbath. He healed that man and they, of course, were angry with him. But what he's doing, he's showing these Jewish leaders that their one true desire is to fulfill the law, to keep the law. Their one true desire is not to love God and love others. When Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment, what did he say? Love God and love others, essentially. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. Love your neighbors as yourself, which comes all the way back from Deuteronomy. That's the most important thing, not keeping the law. But more importantly, I think what's happening here is, is the law of Moses is being replaced by the law of Christ. You see, the law of Moses was just a shadow. It was a preview of things to come. And we get a glimpse of what Jesus is talking about here in the example that he uses. Think of this as kind of a, a lesser to greater comparison. There's a contrast happening. He talks about circumcision. He's talking about the physical act done with one portion of the body, right, circumcision, versus the physical act of healing the entire body. You see the contrast he's making? Like what you have, circumcision, that's great. It, it affects this little area here. I'm talking about the whole body. There's this lesser to greater than comparison, healing the whole man. It's subtle, but you catch what Jesus is doing if you look for what he's talking about. The law of Moses is being replaced by the law of Christ. And he tells him in verse 24, do not judge by appearances. You just can't look and go off of that. What kind of judgment are we supposed to judge with? He says, right judgment. Judge with right judgment. Well, how does that come? How do we get that? He says, right judgment comes with true understanding of who Jesus is. And it begins with, my friends, a desire to do the will of God above everything else. That's what it begins with. That's what he says. If your desire, if your will is to do the will of God, you're going to know that this teaching is true, and you're going to seek to fulfill his will. So let me ask you this, my friends, this morning. Is your sincere desire to do the will of God? Is it? Only you can answer that question. But let me come at you with another question. What is the will of God? Because you can say all day long, oh, my, my desire is to do the will of God. Great. What is the will of God? How do you know what the will of God is? How do you know what you're doing is the will of God? Have you ever asked those questions of yourself? I hope you have. Let me encourage you to do a little homework this week. Maybe you don't like that word. Maybe just be in the word this week. How about that? I would encourage you to do a word study. Has anybody ever done a word study in the Bible? Okay, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to look every time the, the term or the phrase, will of God, is used in the Bible. You're going to take note of those scriptures, and you're going to take inventory stock of what the Bible tells us. Easy. About the word of God. Now, if you're old school and you just want to you know, go through and look in the back of your Bible to the concordance, look up will and God. You might have a hard time finding all those places. Let me give you a good resource, Jackie, www.blueletterbible.org. You don't have to type in that. Just to it. Blueletterbible.org. There's a search bar at the top. Type in will of God, change it to whatever version of the Bible you want, and click 
go. And it will list hundreds of references to the will of God. And you can just start looking at them. And you're going to be very surprised at how much of the will of God is already given to us. XYZ is the will of God. ABC is the will of God. All of these things is the will of God. So desire the will of God, my friends, to be the priority in your life. And in that pursuit, you will find true understanding and right judgment. Amen? Okay, let's look at the next section. We're going to look at verse 25 through 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. demonstrated physically that he is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. It's, it's becoming very clear. But the religious leaders have such a strong grasp on the law and on the people that they're unable to see what is going on, who Jesus truly is. You see, the, the gap is growing wider and wider between who Jesus is very clearly saying he is and who the religious leaders believe him to be. I don't think I told you this, but I'm, I'm kind of titling this message, Mistaken Identity. I mean, that's what's happening here. There's a, there's a great mistaken identity in who Jesus is. And it's interesting when you watch people grapple with the idea of Jesus, even today. So back then, they sort of had this checklist of who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, what he would do, how he would save him. They just had this list of what he would be doing. For people today, it's not that different. They want to accept Jesus on their terms and not on his they have this idea of who he is, and they want to pursue that over and above the truth that we see in the word. And so I think this raises a very important question for all of us. Are we giving the world who's looking at us an accurate picture of who Jesus is? Are we good ambassadors for Christ? Are we reflecting the proper image of the Lord to the world around us? Or are we contributing to a mistaken identity of who Jesus is. Because aren't we called to be all those things? Reflections of Jesus, ambassadors of Jesus? Yeah, we are. Are we reflecting a good image? Are we contributing to mistaken identity? So I want you to notice, though, before we pass over this, verse 28, he tells them, talking about God, him you do not know. This God that I'm talking about, the one who sent me, the one whose will I'm trying to do, Jewish leaders, you people, the most religious in the world, the most privileged, you have the word of God, you have the oracles from generations past, you are the most well-taught, you do not know God. That's what Jesus is telling them right there in that one sentence. And that's why you want to kill me. He tells them straight up, I know God, I'm from God. 
can't recognize me. That's what Jesus is telling them in this moment. Because you don't know who God is, you don't recognize me. And my friends, the world cannot understand or accept Jesus because they also have rejected the Father. But that does not relieve us of our responsibility to give the world the clearest picture of Jesus that we can. Not perfect, not in any way, shape, or form, but seeking, striving to walk in obedience and be proper reflections of Christ. How do we do this? Well, it comes through the way that we love people, especially one another, church. In John, later in 13, 34 and 35, it says, a new, command I, I, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's a powerful statement, church. So how do we be a proper reflection? One way is how we love each other. We also are told to be peacemakers, not just here, but outside with the world. That is a good reflection of who Christ is. Being the light of the world, the city on a hill, the light that cannot be extinguished. And I think two of the most encouraging things from this passage happen in verses 30 and 31. So even though the Jewish leaders are there, they're dead set on arresting Jesus. They've got him in their sights. Everybody's pointing like, hey, isn't this the guy that you want to arrest? And what does it say? No one laid a hand on him because his time did not yet come. My friends, God is in control of everything, even when it doesn't look like he is. I mean, what stopped them in that moment from arresting Jesus? He was there. They were there. People were pointing him out like, hey, here he is. Get him. Not a hand laid on him. Why? It wasn't his time. God said no. That's to be encouraging to you. The second thing is that in the midst of all this questioning and all these problems, opposition towards Jesus, people began to believe in him. Now, granted, at this point, they're more interested in the things that he was doing, the miracles he was doing, but compared to the opposite of being in, in complete opposition to him, they're at least beginning to move in the right direction. That's encouraging. Uh, you know, we have work to do. In spite of all the obstacles around us and around Jesus, we have work to do, and nothing will stand in the way of the gospel being proclaimed. Nothing. All right, next section. So just take a chunk at a time here. Starting in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So now they're actually sending people to arrest him. Like They're, they're done talking about it. They're like, Go and get this guy. Do it. Do it. We haven't got to verse 45 yet, but we'll find out that the people that were sent by the Jewish leaders to arrest Jesus don't do it. And when they're questioned, hey, why did you not? I told you to go get this guy. He was right there. Why didn't you do it? You know what their response was? I couldn't, we couldn't believe how he was teaching. No one's ever taught like this before. They were struck by his authority and what he did. So much so that they 
they rebelled against the Jewish leaders who told them to do something. And I just, that, that should be incredibly fascinating to all of us. But the Jews, the leaders there, seem to be pretty confused about what Jesus is talking about. They had no idea. They're like, wait, so what are you going to do? You're going to go out and teach among the Greeks? Where are you going? What is all this about? And it may seem like a question at first, but really what they're doing is they're mocking Jesus. They're mocking him in a kind of a subtle way, but they're implying that Jesus should leave and go out away from Jerusalem, out among the Gentiles, and teach them. Hopefully there, that his message will be better received. And for any Jew at this time to be told to go out among the Gentiles and teach them, that was a detestable act. Like, you just don't go out among the Gentiles as a Jew and interact with them. So they're really, they're mocking Jesus in that question, in that statement. They don't really care where he's going. They're just trying to get in a dig at him. In the midst of this, Jesus is actually separating himself from the religious leaders. You notice the language of I and you? Where I am going, you cannot come? That makes that separation a little bit more apparent, I think. Jesus is on mission, right? He's on a specific mission from his heavenly father. And they are of a completely different order. They're not even in the same league whatsoever. And so what does this do? It's just going to dump fuel on the fire, right? They're just going to be angry about this. Does this deter Jesus? Does he just like throw in the towel like, okay, I guess you guys win. You want me to go away? Fine, I'll go away. Opposition's too much. I can't handle it. No. It doesn't. Not whatsoever. Let's look at the next couple of verses because I think this is sort of the heart of the message, the heart of the passage. Whenever we preach and whenever you read through a section of the Bible, you should ask yourself those questions. What is the point of this passage? Why am I reading this? And anytime you hear somebody preaching from this pulpit, you should come away with a clear understanding that the point of the message coming through these speakers is the point of this passage. Because it's very easy for teachers of the Bible to make this say whatever they want. Pull things out of context and go, oh, I'll just, I'm going to you know, put my own spin on this. The point of the text needs to be the point of the message. Amen? Okay. So let's read this. Verses 37-39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Okay? So here's the culmination of this feast. Massive celebration on the great day, like the pinnacle of of this, Jesus stands up and he kind of faintly whispers this statement, right? How does, how does Jesus vocalize this? He cried out. <laughs> this is not subtle, my friends. He cries out. This is a very significant moment to everyone that was present that heard his voice and everyone that would ever read these words for the rest of humanity's existence. you got to think about where he is. Where is Jesus? Geographically, he's at the center of Israel. He's in Jerusalem. Spiritually, he's at the center of Judaism. He's in the temple. 
There's significance there in the location of what it is that he's saying. As one scholar writes about that statement about this living water, he says this, There could be no confusion regarding his claims. At that moment, Jesus was eclipsing what God had previously ordained as appropriate worship and religion. At that moment, God was fulfilling with the reality to which the ceremony was only able to point. When Jesus stood up to speak at the pinnacle of the ceremony, the God and promises of the Old Testament coalesced in his person and work. This is significant, church. In this moment, a transition is happening. He's saying everything leading up to this point was only preparing for this moment. And you got to let go of that stuff. The law and everything that has kept you for this point is no longer necessary. Jesus Christ is the provision of God, the source and true meaning of our lives. And so what are the implications then of that statement? What can we take away from this idea? A, a few things. Now let me just read to you again what it is that he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So how many of you have ever been thirsty before? Parched. Days in the desert, anybody? Yeah, a couple of old school hands going up. Is it fun to be thirsty? No, in those moments, you're just like anything, right? You see in the movies, like the, the mirage in the sand and people running to it and they, they start putting their hands in it, it's just sand. Or people that come across this like dirty, nasty water out in the middle of nowhere, they just start lapping it up and you're like, dude, what is in that water? Like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> when you're desperate, when you're thirsting for life, you will do just about anything. So what does this passage tell us? Well, it tells us that our souls thirst for something. Does your soul thirst for something? It does. Everyone's does, even if they don't acknowledge it. And what Jesus offers satisfies that thirst. That's something we need to take away from this text. And it's building off the teaching that he's already given us. In the last chapter, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There is total satisfaction and fulfillment in surrendering to Jesus. A fulfillment and completion that does not exist outside of a relationship with Jesus. Only he can satisfy that completely. Another observation is that our soul can actually drink Right? If, if our souls thirst, they've got to be able to drink. And coming to Jesus means believing. Satisfying that thirst means believing in him. What is John's main point in this entire gospel? What is the name of the series that we're teaching through? Believe. believe. That's the whole point. And now Jesus himself is giving the same truth. Whoever believes in me. So coming and drinking means believing in Jesus. And as a result, you never again have to search for something to satisfy your soul ever again. That's what he's saying in the middle of this huge festival, in the center of Israel, in the center of the religion that he's coming to speak to. If we keep going in verse 39, John helps us to see that what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit, the impartation of the Holy Spirit who dwells in the heart of all believers. Uh, Paul paints this clear picture for us. You don't got to go there, but you can look it up later. Romans 8, 
9 through 11. I'll read it for you. We're talking about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the reality for all believers. That the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that's part of the satisfaction that we have. All those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. That's what Jesus taught even in his Sermon on the Mount. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. But you got to believe. You believe in Jesus. You turn from your sin. You repent. You trust in him and you follow Jesus. Make sense? All right, last section, my friends. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the priests, the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, and this is what I was referring to earlier, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? Oh, sorry, back up to verse 46. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. That was their reason for not arresting him. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone before him and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, I think this section epitomizes the idea of mistaken identity. There's all kinds of ideas about who Jesus is, right? And very few of them are accurate. Everyone's got a different interpretation of who this Jesus is and a different desire to see what would happen play out. But more than this confusion concerning Jesus, it exposes a very harsh truth. And that truth is this, that people see and hear what they want to see and hear. Right? Absolutely. Now listen, we all come to situations, we all come into relationships with people with certain biases and preconceived notions. That's just a reality of our human nature. But when it comes to Jesus, there is only one truth. John records what that one truth is for us in John 14, 6, when Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. That's it. Plain and simple. No mistaken identity about that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's me. And church, we cannot afford a case of mistaken identity. 
John labors so hard to see, clearly show who Jesus is saying that he is. He just keeps repeating himself over and over and over again, trying to draw this picture for us. It can be summed up like this, and that's why I said that verse was sort of the heart of this message. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now remember, from the last two weeks, we said that in Christ we have forgiveness, we have freedom, we have family, we have a future. Now I didn't tie those into my message like Mike did, um, which I was really encouraged by, by the way. But I think it's appropriate that we remind ourselves of these things and that they're only true if we know who Jesus is and if we drink of the living water that Jesus offers. That's it. So do you know who Jesus truly is? Have you come to him? Have you quenched the thirst of your soul by repenting and believing? And are you now on mission to go and share that message with the world as his ambassadors? That, that's what I take from this text. And I pray that you would take that as well and lead you now into obedience. You see, at this church, God has shown us that we are not about discipleship through knowledge acquisition, right? We don't want to increase our knowledge and that be the end. That's not discipleship. It's obedience-based discipleship. What are you going to do with the knowledge that you gain? How are you going to see God's kingdom expand because of what we just looked at today, right? So I encourage you, church. Gave you a couple of things to do this week. One of them is that word search, word study on the will of God. And the other one now is just seeing, what does that look like for me? How can I proclaim this truth to those around me? Pray for opportunities to do that this week. Let's see what God does with it. All right, let's pray. Father, we're so grateful, again, just for your faithfulness. God, we have hope in you. We have life in you. We have strength and joy. We have all that we need. God, you meet every need. You exceed every need. Thank you for your word given to us this morning. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, that you are the living water, that you satisfy the thirst of our soul, and that apart from you, we are incomplete. Apart from you, we will always be wanting for more. But in you, Christ, we have satisfaction. But that's, that's not the end, Lord. That's not the end goal that you have for us. That's, that's phase one, Lord God. Now we move into the next phase of sharing that with others. Of being your hands and your feet. A picture of Christ. Through the way that we love one another, through the way that we love our neighbors as ourselves, as we seek to be ministers of reconciliation, peacemakers, God, people aren't going to want to know what we have to offer if we are not demonstrating a clear picture and image of the living water that you offer. If we're, we're hypocrites, we say one thing and do the other, nobody's going to want to drink of that water. So help us, Lord, 
to walk in obedience to your word. And strengthen us and equip us to put one foot in front of the other. Lord, we know that you don't expect perfection, but you desire obedience. You said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, Lord, help us to do it in community with one another, walking with accountability toward one another. And Father, lastly, I just ask that as we look to your word this week, as we see ways in which the will of God is laid out for us and how we can best walk that out faithfully and consistently, Lord, let us do it for your namesake and for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.